0: Good morning. It's uh, my first time back in church for a while, and thank you for making such a fuss about it. I wasn't going to mention it, but really, it's very good of you to... uh, The balloons were unnecessary. When I was 11 years old, my school decided that uh, it would be most useful for me not to learn something practical like Spanish, not something exotic like Cantonese, not something uh, that might be useful in later life like personal finance, My school decided that what I really needed to do was to learn how to dance. I didn't go to some posh public school. I went to Warden Park School in Cookfield. At Warden Park, every child learnt how to dance. I didn't go to school in the 1800s. This was the uh, mid-1980s. The miners' strike was on, but I was no Billy Elliot. I cannot dance. But they tried. Oh my, how they tried. That fearful Mrs. Revel... Namesake of the great Craig Revel Horwood (laughs) of Strictly fame. And boy, we Strictly learned to dance. Mrs. Revel had rules about dance, and we learned those rules. This was Strictly dancing for polite society. This wasn't break dancing. This wasn't cool street dancing. This wasn't disco dancing. This was dancing in which the gentlemen wore ties and the ladies followed the men. Now, the lady who always had to follow me was the long-limbed and long-suffering Amanda Al-Rudaini. We were always uh, lined up in order of height down the school hall. And despite trying to look shorter than she was, every week I was paired for 22 weeks with Amanda Al-Rudaini. And I cannot dance. I do not dance, and I will not dance. And so for 22 weeks, it was like watching two giraffes playing Twister. (laughs) It was not beautiful. It was not social. It was miserable. And it was painful and ugly to watch. Dancing is not supposed to be like that. But I am too much of a control freak to dance. To this day, it's like musical chairs in reverse. When the music starts, I sit down. I am self-conscious. I can stand up and I suspect some of you are looking at me now. But if music started playing and you all got up and danced, I would suddenly be fearful that you would be looking at me and laughing at me. And I would run and I would hide. It's called chorophobia, the fear of dance. Dancing is not supposed to be like that. Listen to the words of, of Michael Jackson. This is what it's supposed to be like to dance. I shared these same words actually exactly a year ago on Back to Church Sunday with the elders on our away day. This is the gospel according to Michael Jackson. You don't hear that every day. This world we live in is the dance of the creator. Dancers come and go in the twinkling of an eye, but the dance lives on. On many an occasion when I am dancing, I have felt touched by something sacred. In those moments, I felt my spirit soar. I become the stars and the moon. I become the lover and the loved. I become the victor and the vanquished. I become the master and the slave, the singer and the song, the knower and the known. I keep on dancing, and then it is the eternal dance of creation. The creator and creation merge into one wholeness of joy. I keep on dancing and dancing and dancing until there is only the dance. I want you to hold on to that one line. The creator and creation merge into one wholeness of joy, because that is the sermon in a sentence. That is this Feast of Tabernacles in one sentence. This was for the Jews a season of joy, of knowledge of the presence of God that overflowed in a vivid experience, and from that experience was pure, unadulterated joy. Not a happy, clappy, forced kind of joy, but the Creator and His creation merged into one wholeness of joy. Our reading today is set against the backdrop of this Feast of the Tabernacles. And it's topical because the Feast of the Tabernacles finished on Thursday of this week. It's celebrated to this day. Now, the Feast of the Tabernacles was part harvest celebration and part religious celebration. But what it was mostly was eight days of feasting and partying and joyous, riotous celebration. And seven nights between those eight days of dancing and dancing and shouting and music. It was an absolute riot. You see, back to church Sunday and back to school means for us going back to work, back to normal. But this autumn celebration for them was an end of term. It was after everything had been gathered in, after all the work was done, then came this celebration. It was their end of the working year. In Deuteronomy 16, uh, verse 13, we read how the Jews are... Um, encouraged to keep this feast you shall keep the feast of booths the booths were these shelters these tabernacles I um, had about five minutes of stand-up comedy about the fact that i don't think joy and camping should be we don't have time for that today um, but they were they had these twin uh, instructions from god to be joyful and to go camping make of that what you will but god has a sense of humor You shall keep the Feast of Booths, or camping, for seven days, when you have gathered in the produce from the threshing floor and your wine press. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite and the sojourner. Basically everybody, uh, whatever your social class, whether you were Jew or Gentile, whether you went to church or you didn't go to church. This was back to God Sunday, but with eight days of partying, not just some balloons. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord your God will choose. God will bless you in your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. Now David's looking nervous because he's got harvest next week. So we're not going to look at the produce part of this. Each of these religious festivals had two components. One was harvest and the provision of God. But the other aspect of this was the presence of God. The Feast of Tabernacles was about two things. It was about celebrating the in-gathering of our crops and our harvest, and David will look at that next week. But this week, we're looking about the other aspect of the festival, which was to celebrate God tabernacled, God camping together with the people of the Lord. The reason they went camping wasn't because it's joyful and comfortable, because we know that can't possibly be true. The reason that they went camping was to remind them that while they were camping in these same booths, in these same shelters in the wilderness, God camped with them. He was tabernacled together with them. They knew his presence as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But he was there with them in the wilderness. And he was there with them in the land that he had promised them. So they gave up their stake in that land. They gave up their homes and some of those possessions around that can distract us from God. And they moved into these camps, either on their roof uh, or in the courtyard of their homes, to remember that all that they had The land they had been given was dependent on the God who was with them, come what may. A God who tabernacled with them, who camped with them in the wilderness. But the two main elements of the feast occurred not in these camps, but in the temple. So we turn, uh, and just keep your finger, in John 7, verse 37, where we see Jesus present right at the climax of one part of this festival. Now, I need to explain the background to what's happening here. Jesus is there on the eighth and greatest day of the feast. For seven days, there's been this partying. And for seven days, there's been this water celebration that occurs every morning. But on the eighth day, the festival gets bigger, if that's possible, and brighter than it has been for the whole of the rest of the feast. So at dawn on that last day, the greatest day of the feast that we read about in John 7:37, Jesus is present for the highlight moment of these eight days of festival. At dawn on that last day, all of the priests, hundreds of them, would make the half-mile journey down from the temple to the pool of Siloam. And with them they would take musicians and dancers, and the crowds would line the streets, thousands upon thousands of people. Because the great thing about this festival was everybody could come. Everybody was invited, the Jews and the Gentiles, the rich and the poor. And because the harvest was gathered in, unlike the other festivals, everybody could come. The other festivals, only the rich and the religious would come. But this was a celebration for everybody. Everybody had the day off. Nobody had to work. The work was done. So everybody was there lining the streets. So the priests would go down to the Pool of Siloam, and they carried with them this golden jug. Uh, carried about one and a half liters of water. They put it into the pool of Siloam and they would process back up through the streets. And as they processed, the people had gone down to the rivers and pulled willow branches and they would wave them over this uh, procession of the priests and the dancers and the musicians. And they would read from, or would shout out and cry out from Psalm 118 Lord save us, Lord grant us success, Hosanna. There are echoes here of what happened when Jesus took that same walk on Palm Sunday. They waved the same palms. They shouted the same words. As they entered the city by the water gate, they stopped. And on that final day, trumpets blasted three times, seven times. And then on into the temple where they paraded the water around the altar seven times. And each time it paraded around the, the altar, the crowd would chant... They were chanting for rain. This was the end of the dry season. The harvest was gathered in and now they needed rain. But they were also praying for the Spirit of God to pour out in that place. They prayed for rain for the harvest and a spiritual blessing. They were praying for salvation and for the Messiah to come. They chanted, please bring salvation now. Please God, please save and bring salvation now. Time and time again, each time around the the altar. Now, we take water for granted, and we don't really pray for rain very often in this church. But for them, this water was a matter of life and death. Please save and bring salvation now. Water symbolized the promise, and the Spirit of God poured out into their hearts and lives and minds. Please save and bring salvation now, louder and louder each time around the altar. Please save and bring salvation now. And as the crowd is shouting, in that final time, the high priest lifted this pitcher of water high and poured it over the altar, where it would go into a bowl and then pour and cascade down the steps of the altar. Please save and bring salvation now. It is at this moment of salvation that Jesus cries out, He stands up and he says, come to me, all you who are thirsty. At this moment when they're calling out for salvation, Jesus, who's decided to attend this festival in secret, can contain this good news no longer. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus stands up and says that your pitcher of water is too small. I have enough for everybody here. There were thousands present. And Jesus says, come to me, all of you. There were Jews present and Gentile presence. And Jesus says, come to me, all of you. There were rich people present and poor people. There were slaves and free. And Jesus says, come to me, all of you. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, that last bit is complicated. But at a spiritual level, water represents that which nourishes our hearts. Uh, and this comes most clearly from Jeremiah 2, verse 13, where it's written. And this is Jeremiah saying, lamenting uh, on behalf of God, giving a picture of how the Jews have moved away from the presence of God. Jeremiah writes this. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When Jesus talks about living water, he's talking about reconnecting to that main supply of water that comes in the presence of God. Forsaken is just a fancy biblical way of saying that the Jews had moved away from God. They had moved away from this fountain of living water. What's your source of spiritual water, of spiritual nourishment? Jeremiah said that the Jews had hewn out cisterns. Now, in Israel, there were two sources of water that you could have. One was to connect to uh, a living stream, a running stream of water, or a natural spring. The other was to hew out a cistern. It was to dig into the rock uh, and make a small opening. And having made that opening, it was lined with plaster. And then you waited for the rain to come, and your cistern would fill up. Most houses had them. But the problem with the cisterns was that you were dependent on the rain. And so he's saying this at the end of the dry season. He's saying this as they pray for rain. What they're praying for is that God will come and the rain will refill their cisterns at home. This is spiritual plumbing. Jesus says, don't pray for rain that your cisterns may be refilled. The problem with cisterns was they would dry out. The problem with cisterns were that while you made them by your own hands, they could be cracked and hold no water at all. The problem with cisterns was that the water got dirty and got brackish. It was warm. And it would go green with algae. It wasn't a stream of living water. Jesus says to all who are thirsty, I will give you the springs of living water to live freely. Jesus says your ceremony is too small. Your God is too small to you. Reconnect that main supply. Come close again to God and you will know that fountain of living water. It's odd, because at this ceremony, everyone was calling for the presence of God in that place. Yet when God showed up, how did they react? Some of them recognized him. and Some were fearful of him. They prayed for God to come. But when God came and made them an offer, they didn't know how to react. But Jesus is calling for us not to sip at our faith like it's rationed somehow. Not to work in our own effort to make our own systems and look for our own spiritual nourishment and fulfillment, but simply to come, not to sip, but to be soaked, not to dip our toes into the river of life, but to fling ourselves upon his mercy and into the current of his ever-flowing stream. I wonder when you came to church this morning if you actually expected to meet God. Because when I come to church week by week, Often I come into church in the same way that I get into the ocean when I go swimming. And that's a bit embarrassing. Are you like me? And and after that first bit when your ankles are kind of a bit cold, then you can get about this far. And when you're in the ocean around about this far, and your shorts are damp, but your top half is dry, then it gets a little bit awkward and a little bit uncomfortable. Then comes the moment that I have to make a commitment. I'm halfway between the shore and the people frolicking in the waves. And I'm often stranded there for about 20 or 25 minutes, trying to look cool, trying to look like I intended only to come this far, trying to look like I'm comfortable and confident standing there, even though you sort of go like this every time a wave comes, because you're getting colder and colder and wetter and more uncomfortable. And then across the sand will come some bronzed Adonis, somebody who lives by the ocean, somebody who knows how wonderful it is when they're in the water. And they will come bounding across the sand, barely flicking any up behind them. And as they come in, just no water comes up around their feet. And then they do this thing. I was doing that in slow motion. They weren't drugged. Um, so as they come past you, they, do, they flick their feet in some way and just disappear headfirst. It's It's beautiful. And I trudge awkwardly over the stones back to the beach, and I sit down to read my book. And Zoe's like, I thought you were going swimming. And I was like, No, I just wanted to get damp. <laughs> Some of us come to church not expecting to meet God, but maybe expecting just to get damp. Maybe coming week by week, but really not wanting to go beyond that point that feels a little bit awkward, a little bit uncomfortable, not quite ready to commit. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are thirsty. Don't sip from me, I long to soak you. We should leave church wet every single week. We should leave soaked. I don't know if you've ever been to um, SeaWorld or one of those big shows with like, the killer whales and, and the dolphins and things. But at the front of those shows, they have about 10 or 15 rows of blue benches. Now, If you sit on one of the blue benches, you're in what's called the splash zone. If you sit on one of the blue benches, you are going to get wet. It's well signposted, and everybody sits in the front, and everybody gets absolutely soaked, and they love it. Except for a few Japanese tourists whose cameras get ruined because they can't read the signs. But if you sit on one of the blue chairs at the front, you will get wet. I'm not saying you'll get a drop of water on it, or you will get splashed. You will get soaked. And I pray that in this church, we will have to paint every one of these chairs blue. Because when we have a festival... It's not about us standing up here and speaking. It's about the spirit of God flowing in this place, and you're all in the splash zone. God invites everyone to come to him, to come to church, but he wants you to come to church to get wet. He wants you to leave this place not damp and uncomfortable, but soaked and wet through. He wants you to leave wet to the point that everybody you meet this week will have to ask you, what's different about you? Why do you look so wet? (laughs) And he wants you to come racing back here next week because you want to get wet again. God longs to soak us, not for us to sip, but to be soaked, not for us to dip our toes into the river of life, but for us to leap and make a leap of faith and let him sweep us away. There was another part of the festival that happened every evening. And will you, while I'm talking about this, because we're running out of time, put your finger in John 8, and we're going to be looking at verse 12. So every evening at the festival, uh, the priests would light these giant candles. Now, when I say candle, you've got to think a little bit bigger than you're thinking about candles right now. Each of the four candles was 73 feet high. So that's, I don't know, what, one and a half times the height of this ceiling. And each of the candles uh, were actually candelabras. They had these four giant bowls of oil connected to them. And into the bowls of oil were put old priest's robes, which were set alight every night at sundown. So if you can imagine, there are 16 bowls of oil, 73 feet high in the air, wicks ablaze every single night. It was said that the light from these bowls, from these candelabras, lit every courtyard in Jerusalem. Why? Because during the course of this festival, the Jews remembered the presence of their God over them. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. So each and every night, this beacon of light shone out from the temple over every courtyard and every roof. Everybody sleeping outside in their tents or tabernacles was lit and protected. It was cold and it was dark in the desert at night. But everybody slept under the pillar of fire during this festival. And it was as this huge fire glowed over them, just as the presence of God had done in the wilderness, that we read what Jesus says in John 8. As these 73 feet high candles blaze into the darkness, Jesus speaks these words. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. At the end of the same morning, when he had invited people to come to him, Jesus invited his disciples once again to follow him. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Not a 73-foot-high set of candles that can light a city, but a light for the whole world, for all people, near and far. Not a light for a few people, but for whoever follows him, that they will never know the darkness and will have the light of life. Once the priests had lit the candles something remarkable happened. They would climb up ladders to light these 73-feet-high candles, and then the courtyard of the temple was filled with heat and light from the candles. And then the priests would dance. We're not talking about Anton Dubeck dancing. We're talking about the priests and the Pharisees, old men, scholars, wise men, the religious men who Jesus and we make fun of sometimes when we look through the scriptures that these same men danced, and how they danced, wildly and with absolute abandon. It was written by the Jewish scholars that if you had not seen the priests dance, you had never seen rejoicing in this lifetime. They danced because the blaze of the Spirit of God filled their temple. They were so overwhelmed by his presence, by the light and the heat in that place, that they danced the whole night through. And it was written that those who had not seen the priests dance had never seen rejoicing, Do they write that about our churches? Do they write that about our gatherings, that people who have not been to church don't know joy, don't know rejoicing? Are we too English to dance like that? Do we know joy as living water flows in us and through us, or are our hearts suffering from a hosepipe ban? Are our hearts hewn out of our own energies? Can they hold the spirit that we long to pour into them? Or do we reconnect them to the main supply, to the fountain of life? Would you pray that for the elders of this church that we might dance like that? Jeremy's looking nervous. (laughs) That we may be filled with the presence of God like that. Would you pray that for our worship and for our times together in church that we would know the presence of God and know that fullness of joy, that our church may enter into a season of joy? Would you pray for our church meetings and for our Sunday mornings, that we would know that season, that festival of joy? Would you pray for each one of us that as we come into this church, we may dance not in fear that people will laugh at us, but in the certain knowledge that God is smiling over us. Would you pray that as we come into this church, we may dance, not in a way that is self-conscious, but in a way that is God-conscious? Would you pray that as we come into this place, we may dance, not because other people are dancing, but because we were made to dance. Would you pray that we may dance in this place because the creator and his creation long to merge into one wholeness of joy.